0: Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Victor Davis Hanson, a classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Hanson is the author of many books, including the classic study, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Dr. Hanson's newest volume published this very month of October, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, let's begin with uh, the text for today, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22. And an incident that took place 2,000 years ago, St. Paul is testifying in Jerusalem. The crowd reacts so violently that Roman soldiers intervene and the commander orders Paul flogged. I'm going to pick it up at verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog? a Roman citizen? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander was alarmed when he realized he had put a Roman citizen in chains. Close quote. The story continues. Paul demands a trial in Rome and indeed he is taken to Rome where he is martyred. 2,000 years ago, citizenship meant something so definite, so meaningful, so specific that it commands respect from a a common commander hundreds of miles from Rome. How should Americans read that passage today? As a reproach to our own loss of the idea? With nostalgia. With nostalgia. what,
1: what Paul is talking about is it's a takeoff on a very famous passage I think from Cicero where he says, any man in the Republic, the late Republic, early Empire, all he had to say was, Kiwis Romano sum, I am a Roman, and there were, the doors were open because of the prestige. And so you can really see what people want and what they're naive about or they don't care about or they're lackadaisical. About. So people are crossing our border, are we having an outcry? I need to be a citizen. I want to be a citizen. They talk about amnesty, but nobody says amnesty, I want to be a citizen. And so the dividing line from a resident and a citizen, what is it now? It used to be monumental. It was, you can't hold an office unless you're a, a citizen. I think that's American still, citizen. that's been under attack. I can't vote unless I'm a, you can vote in some board <laughs> elections in Massachusetts and California if you're not a citizen. You cannot uh, qualify for entitlements. That's gone. Uh, you can, you only, a citizen has the permission to leave his country and come back at will. But now it's just the opposite. I come into SFO and I don't have a passport. I go into a little room and I'm in trouble. I go fly into Mexico City and I cross the border. I can do it with impunity. So those barriers or divides or whatever term we use have dissipated. They no longer exist.
0: Today only a little more than half the world's seven billion people, I'm quoting from The Dying Citizen, are citizens of fully consensual governments enjoying constitutionally protected freedoms. They're almost all Western. These realities explain why millions from North Africa risk drowning in the Mediterranean to reach Europe and why millions more uproot from Mexico and Latin America to cross the southern border of the United States." Close quote. Here's the question that that raises right away. Is citizenship coincidental or is it central to the way of functioning that sets the western world apart. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. If if a Mexican, let's say a Mexican from some poor mountain town in Oaxaca, what he wants is a better life for himself and his family. He wants, he's drawn to the economic engine of the United States. Citizenship is incidental in his mind, but is it incidental to the American project itself?
1: Well, citizenship, is a synonym for a constitutional republic. And it's very rare. It's fragile. It doesn't exist in history very much. It's the aberration. And it's very difficult to make people pick their own leaders, audit them, uh, vote on issues of revenue and taxation, et cetera. So most people outsource that to monarchs or tyrants or somebody else. But this idea that you're an independent, autonomous, middle class citizen is very rare. And when you talk to people who come from Mexico, and I do a lot, they say things that nobody would would guess. They don't say I just came here for better wages. There's a friend of mine, Raul, I won't give his last name. He said, you know, I came up here because when I was in o- Oaxaca, no one ever called me senor. It was you or Raul. I came up here. The first thing I noticed when I went into the doctor's office in Selma, California, I'll just use the word Mendez. Mr. Raul Mendez, can I help you? In other uh-huh. words, a citizen, they, he thought he was a citizen, but people were given a, a, a modicum of respect. So we want to cherish that. And you cannot have citizenship, as I said in the book. Unless you have a sacred space that inculcates traditions and customs, borders, borders, a and those sacred borders have space to be within s- borders. Yeah, that's what you go to Greece. The wars were over borders because they thought that Thebes and Athens or Argos and Sparta that they had to have that space, and they they were very jealous of it because outside of the space, they didn't have the, the power, they didn't have the control, they didn't have the money to extend their citizenship. The idea was if you try to extend citizenship beyond your natural confines and you dilute it at the core, sort of like the British Empire right. and then you're right at the core at London, you've got Dickens writing David Copperfield. It's rotten at the core. Right. Right.
0: Victor, you divide the book The Dying Citizen into two parts. In the first part of the book, you entitle Pre-citizens and you describe certain states from which entities, nations, must raise their people before they can achieve real citizenship and into which various forces are now attempting now dragging Americans back, right? Could we take a few of those and just just take me through them? One of these is, I'm going to call it disappearing self-sufficiency, but I'm going to quote you. The population cannot exercise its rights without material security that only the economic self-reliance and autonomy of the middle class ensure," close quote. And you illustrate this point by talking about the democracy of ancient Greece where only those with a certain degree of property, property, not the very rich, but they had to have some property, were permitted to participate in the assembly. Today, I'm continuing to quote you, today the modern suburban everyman is becoming a nostalgic ideal rather than a, than a vibrant reality indeed the middle class the American middle class has lost economic ground for nearly half a century. so explain during this half a century by one kind one economist measure after another, the country's gotten richer yeah. so you don 't mean just i mean we all have iPhones that we didn 't use to have we so so
1: what do you mean what do you mean by this i 'm saying that well, we have these appurtenances and we can call Nigeria or Moscow and we couldn't do that with a million dollars 30 years ago, right. I understand that. But right. I'm talking about the ability to function within a society in an autonomous fashion. So if you're a young person, mm-hmm. you get your sociology major and what do you do? You have 50, 60, 80 thousand dollars in debt. 1.7 trillion dollars in debt. And if you die- Student middle, debt. Yes, student debt. The average person dies with about a net worth of 10 thousand dollars and about $10,000 in credit card debt. So you're not creating people who are going to say to wealthy people, I want want to be very careful that these very powerful influential people do not uh, leverage, warp, massage government action. I'm quoting almost Aristotle now. And you don't want people who are very impoverished to say to the government, I need a subsidy. So you got these middle people that said I don't need the government and I don't need wealthy people. I'm an independent person. I'm going to audit my elected officials. I'm going to speak out if I disagree with General Milley, if I don't like Anthony Fauci's policy, I'm going to say so. I'm not worried about the government retaliating to me. I'm not worried about a Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. He can't hurt me. I'm an independent. And yet what do we have? What's what Tocqueville was brilliant in democracy in America. He said that Basically, he forecasts what would happen when you had an entitlement state. You'd have a prolonged adolescence. So what are we doing now? If you look at the first age of marriage, 23 to 29. First child, about 26 to
0: 30. Over what period of time? Over the Over last 20 years. 50, years, 50 okay. years. And then Sorry.
1: buying a house, we were making progress. 63% is going down, and the age is going up. And so we're having these people, I guess Obama knew something that we didn't when he had the Pajama Boy commercial and the life of Julia, that we were creating dependent people upon government or the largesse. Of- of wealthy people and an infantilized population it was it it was very valuable cell phones or not does not make for citizens. They're not independent and just to finish on the middle class, I was very lucky that I was a classic student because that's central, the Mesoi are central to the experience of uh, civic government and consensual government and they're mentioned everywhere in classical literature, Roman and Greek literature. But I've also lived in California. And it's a medieval society of rich and poor with the highest poverty rate in the United States, the most people in the country that are on So, So, hang on a second.
0: When you were a boy growing up on the family no. ranch in Selma, what was California like? No, it was an agrarian. I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't mean, I, I, California no. was wonderful in the 50s, so I didn't know, but I'm not, I, what was it actually like? What it was an, was an agrarian like?
1: grid. The average farm size where we lived was about 60 acres. There was a house and a family and they were in the PTA, they were on the hospital board, they were the little league coaches. There was and a those community. those 60 acres were there. Yes. And you, you we, we would say poor people. They they were uh, not very wealthy, but they were wealthy in a different sense. They had their own food, they canned them, we we dried tomatoes before we had them all winter, we had grape juice, we did everything. And we were outspoken, we didn't care what the wealthy thought of us. We didn't want anything to do with the poor. And there was a natural diversity, there was a Greek American family, there was a Mexican American family, there was the Armenian family, there was a Japanese, no one cared they because they were all autonomous. Right? Yeah, and right. they were all autonomous and yet now that same grid, I'm the last person of that neighborhood.
0: Replaced by? By,
1: by su- very efficient, super, agri- super ag- yes, big ag- vast corporate farms and I rent mine out to a corporate farm, my little 40 acres and the houses are now rented to very impoverished people. So we're plagued with gangs and crime and there's no sense of community. And that's California. We've had about 8 to 10 million people live the state who are middle class. We had an open border. We're very impoverished, hardworking but impoverished people came under illegal auspices. And then we had the highest concentration of wealth in the history of civilization in Silicon Valley, $5 trillion a few miles from where we're speaking right now of market capitalization. And so you can see that it's a, it's a coastal elite and then it's a vast peasantry in the interior and the foothills Northern California.
0: The erosion of borders. The dying citizen, once again, states must privilege citizens over mere residents and citizens must live within established borders sharing, here's that marvelous phrase of yours again, must live within established borders sharing a sacred physical space, close quote. The trouble today, again, the dying citizen, we now live in an increasingly borderless world, close quote. Borderless, I get the borderless because you turn on the television and you can see streams of people from the south not being, I don't know what the word, well, there's streaming Two million across, this physical year. Right, right, streaming across the southern border, but you mean more than that. Yeah. You said a moment ago. We can call Nigeria or Moscow on our cell phone. There's yeah. some sense of a loss of um, part of the problem is tech. No. Yes. No. I'm trying to feel no, my way Absolutely.
1: Here. We and this has some relevance for the last chapter on globalization. What we were saying is that the communications eroded time and space, so you could go somewhere or you could speak somewhere, and there was a uniformity of culture. I get that, but in reaction to that the physical borders in Europe but especially in the United States southern border and and places in Asia started to collapse and people got angry because the first thing they discovered is when people migrated across usually for economic reasons and they did so in mass often under illegal auspices often without capital or skills then they became wards of the state and they added to the subsidies that were required to give them parity. enlightened societies and the taxes burden on the middle class and wages fell, that were on the middle, middle class wages fell and crime arose. It's just a fact. And more importantly, when you meet somebody at the barber shop and you meet somebody, you know, at the hospital, emergency room, and they're not a citizen and they're not here legally or they're not even a legal residence, what do you have in common other than your basic humanity? you say, what did you think of Fourth of July this weekend? Who's your favorite president? Are you going to be a little league coach? And there's a, a foreignness there. And it's all—it's okay if it's a small minority of the population. But when you have 40 to 50 million people that were not born in the United States, some of them are legal residents, some of them have been natural a lot haven't. Or 27% of the state of California were not born in the United States. Again, some legal residents, right. then you're encountering too many people that don't have the common shared civic uh, reinforcement. And so, when you ask them, what do you think of the Electoral College, or what do you think of getting rid of the nine-person Supreme Court, or what do you think of outlawing gas uh, lawnmowers in California, or do you like the 99 being the most dangerous highway in the United States in California, uh, you, you're met with a blank stare, I don't know, don't know anything. Ask me a question about Oaxaca and I can tell you. Right. So this, I, and when you add it finally, Peter, to the host, we're the host, and we used to say. You chose to come in. We didn't ask you. You chose to have a different paradigm from where you left, and we're going to have a brutal bargain. You're going to assimilate. You. We're going to integrate you. We're going to intermarry. We're going to make you a perfect American. And if you do this, you have just as much right as somebody who came across on the Mayflower, as Teddy Roosevelt said. Seven generations mean nothing. You are the equal to uh, the daughters of the (laughs) the Revolution. Right. Right. And now we say, you know, who are we to judge? Who are we to say that our system is better than theirs? Hello, well, they left, they're theirs, they, for, they forsake it, they're here. Yeah.
0: They're the ones who said that our system yeah. is better than theirs. Victor, there's the economic argument again.
1: I just want to put it to you to see, see what,
0: you hand, how, what you do with it. Here's a, a somebody called Andy Semiotic, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in Forbes. According to the last census, census the U.S. population grew at the second slowest rate over the last decade, since the founding of the country. The two main reasons were a declining fertility rate and a reduction in immigration. Our future well-being is intricately linked to increased immigration, a lot more immigration." Close quote. Because you need immigrants for economic
1: growth. Yes, well, when he says that, I I don't want to be untoward, but he, he uses the word immigration. He didn't say legal immigration versus illegal immigration. So we have two million people coming in this fiscal year illegally. And the first thing they do is violate federal law when they step foot in the United States. The second thing they do is violate federal law when they reside here. And often, until this administration, the third thing they do is have identification that justifies or protects them when asked, fraudulent, social security number, driver's license, et cetera. So they conflate the two. Let's just take away illegal immigration and look at legal immigration. We take more legal immigrants than any country in the world. Unless you say, well, Saudi Arabia has guest workers that go back and forth. So already we are the most liberal country in the world uh, as far as immigration. Everybody knows that. But what people do is, because they have other agendas, uh, whether they're corporate people and want cheap labor, whether they're ethnic groups that want an identity politics base, whether they want to change the electorate for the Electoral College, whether they're Mexico they want reparations, excuse me, remissions, $60 billion for Central America and Mexico per year from people who are mostly on subsidies in addition to their wages to send back to Mexico. Right. Maybe they want a safety valve so revolutionaries go north rather than march on a racist Mexico city. But whatever the reason is. People realize that illegal immigration (laughs) benefits people, benefits people, but it does not benefit the citizen, the middle class. Legal immigration does. All right.
0: Uh, One more of these categories of pre-citizenship, tribal identity. The dying citizen quote: All citizens should give up their own ethnic, racial, and tribal primary identities. Only through such a brutal bargain of assimilation. You come here, you learn English, you learn the way our government works. Correct, that's the kind of assimilation you mean. Only through such a brutal bargain of assimilation can they sustain a common culture. What's wrong today? Again, the dying citizen. Until the late 20th century, the United States suffered only sporadic episodes of blood and soil exclusivity, and instead usually through intermarriage and assimilation made the idea of racial or ethnic purity inert. Now the nation is threatening to go tribal, once a man owes more loyalty to his first cousin than to a fellow citizen, a constitutional republic cannot exist." Close quote.
1: Explain that. Well, there's been very full, first of all, there's been very few multiracial societies of any sort in history. The natural bird of a feather flock together is the norm, right. as Socrates said. Okay, so when you have a multiracial country and people are naturally tribal you can use coercion like the Soviet Union did or the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire or you can try to be a democratic consensual country or you can do like the Yugoslavia remember how that worked out or Rwanda or you can be consensual like India and Brazil it doesn't work out that great we're the only one we're, that's trying it if you Peter Robinson right. says I love Japan it's an ally. I want to be a Japanese citizen and rise high and be a political pundit on Japanese TV and run for office. Zero, zero. chance. If zero. I say, I love Mexican, Mexican people. I do. And I love Mexico. I'm going to go down and be a Mexican citizen and someday be president. Zero chance. Gringo forever. Zero. OK. So this was a unique experiment. Nobody seems to appreciate that. And Martin Luther King Jr. told us that the content of our character was more important than the color of our skin. So here we are. 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, and we're re tribalizing with a complete ignorance of where that trajectory leads in history. It leads to blood and soil violence. It leads to incompetency. It leads to the destruction of meritocracy. I had a just
0: Can I? You just yeah. mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., of course, you're right here that we had only sporadic episodes of blood and soil, but of course, we did have Jim Crow. We did, and we but, had slavery. But, but the argument is that somehow or other, there was a, s- a century of delay to dissimilar- symbolize What is it? How does that fit into your argument about the virtues of this republic, about how we finally come to...
1: Because it's innate in the Declaration of Independence, all men are e- created equal. And in the Constitution, there's not a mention of race at all. So you have these Europe... So the ideals are latent and finally yes. we live well, up to there's Well, the, uh, they're Newman. They've just fought the British and now they've got this country and then half of them... Not half, but a quarter of them have slaves. And the other people said, you shouldn't have slaves. And they said, we're going to keep our slaves. And then it's a question, do we want to have another war right after this war? And they said, no.
0: Let's kick that OK,
1: so on. let's do this, but let's work on it. And so they worked on it. They were slow and tardy, but the innate logic of this constitution is self-criticism and improvement. And we always do that. But now, speaking as someone who taught 21 years with mostly minority students in classics, I was under the impression that because of economic conditions and innate prejudices, I was going to take Southeast Asian students, Mexican-American students, Mexican national, the diaspora of Oklahoma, poor whites, and teach them classics, diction, logic, analysis, English composition, maybe they could read French, and history literature. And then they were going to have a prep school education at Cal State Fresno, and I was going to send them if they wanted to go to med school. And they would be better prepared, racially blind. And it worked. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that. Some of my students were very, very successful and guess what? The last 10 years I noticed that they started to trill their R's on their names or they put a hyphen with an accent mark or they started to say as a Chicana or as a black person. And I said, where did you get that? You're better educated than a guy from Andover. And they said, well, it pays dividends. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that's, we're, we're making a retrogression to a pre-civilized state of mind
0: the second half of the book, post-citizens. Part one, pre-citizens, the state of humanity from which it must be raised in order to enjoy citizenship. It's natural, pre-civilizational state. Post-citizens doesn't transcend citizenship except in the minds of the people who Who are are themselves. And as I
1: say, it's mostly an elite right. Okay. So let's take a couple
0: of these, Victor. I want to stipulate that you've written a book. And this is a, a vidcast. So I'm, I'm working really hard to reduce an ox to a bullion cube here. You're doing a so, very good job. Well, thank you. But people <laughs> should read the book. The Dying Citizen. All right. Permanent Bureaucracy. Yes. The Dying Citizen, quote, an unelected federal bureaucracy yearly creates more laws and regulations than the House and Senate. The bureaucratic elite. Both of those words are doing a lot of work in that sentence. The bureaucratic elite believes that it can and should preempt any elected official who it deems dangerous, close quote. Preempting elected officials has what to do with ordinary citizens, ordinary middle class so, citizens.
1: I think people from the founding realized when they looked at other paradigms, whether it was the El Esquerel of the Spanish Empire or Versailles of the the French empire, or the, the Bourbons, or the Kremlin, the czarists. That government by nature has people who master its intricacies. They're not elected. So when from people, what, these people were not elected, but even when monarchs come in, they have to rely on these other people. They better. need the
0: bureaucrats. And
1: when you apply that to democracy, it's contradictory to the spirit of a citizen legislature or executive or judge. And so, They were very wary of that. The government was pretty small. Federal government basically dealt with tariffs, and it didn't get into civil legislation. So we started to expand. And we expanded on the notion that equality gradually was to its fruition today is now equity. It's not a quality of opportunity. It's a quality of result. Now, you and I are not born equally. I don't know. You might have better health or worse health. Your IQ is probably higher than mine you're doubtful but I may be on. luckier than you you may be luckier than I but if the government says we're going to be equal then it needs enormous powers of coercion to make you go down and me go up and so that requires a huge government and that was what the philosophical tradition warned about and yet we've got 2 million people in the federal government and about 40% of Americans work for some sort of government and it, from it's from the uh, trivial or the everyday, when you're driving down the 99 or I-5 and you see uh, a road construction and there's girders all over the road and there's guys working, you think, I could sue that guy. It's the most dangerous work site. And then you say, Caltrans. I can't sue them, they're the government. But if a private contractor did that, and you I'm could. speaking as a private far- farmer, right. it's dangerous. So. As we know from the Soviet, when government is everything, you have no power of, of redress. And then second, at the, at the existential level, what is Lois Lerner, IRS, Commissioner, General Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, John Brennan, former James C- Clapper, former, uh, C- yeah, James, John Brennan CIA. head of the CIA. CIA, right. Let's be fair to all of them, James Clapper, uh, Director of In- National Intelligence. We can add in, if we want, Andrew McCabe, acting deputy FBI, and James Comey. What do they all have in common? They're completely, un- put in Anthony Fauci, because you have had guests talked about that. They're never responsible for the consequences of their own ideology. So if John Brennan says, well, I lied, I, I admit that. I didn't tell the truth about the Senate commuters that we and the CIA surveil," All right, yes, there were people who were killed on drone. I misspoke under oath. Try that with the IRS. Or when James Clapper says, well, I, the NSA does I, uh, surveil people, but I gave the least untruthful answer. Or Lois Lerner said, well, we did use political considerations to target these nonprofit groups and delay them before the election of 2012. Or General Milley said, well, you know, I really didn't kind of sort of didn't break the chain of command by interrupting the protocols about nuclear codes or violating Article 88 of the Uniform Court of Military Justice by calling my commander-in-chief a Nazi or Hitlerian. It's in legend, Bob Woodward's book. I could go on, but you have this elite that because they're like an amoeba and they're not accountable, and they're judge, jury, executioner. They're ex- executive, judicial, legislative power.
0: The rules do not apply to them.
1: And that's why they make. And they also cannot
0: be voted out of office. Yeah,
1: I you know I was very naive. I was a classist and a farmer, and then I learned one day. I think it was at the age of 26. I didn't own the raisin crop that was that I was growing. The federal government called the raisin administrative committee owned it and so all of a sudden the price fell out in 1982, 3, I thought oh wow, it doesn't even, it doesn't make sense to send the crop. I'll just pack it and send it at farmers market and they said no you don't, the Raisin Administrative can set aside a reserve telling, this year it's 70%, 70% of that crop is Mm -hmm. ours. You don't own it, we're gonna take it or we're gonna make cattle feed or throw it away or send it to Europe for free. I said but you don't own it, you don't own the, yes you do. And they, you know, it took a 30-year lawsuit for one grower that challenged it. So it's too big, and it's too unaccountable, and it does a lot of things that are very scary. And we're watching it now, whether it's the Pentagon or an intelligence invest. Eisenhower said, "Beware of the military-industrial complex." Now I think we're going to have to say, "Beware of the military-industrial-intelligence and investigative complex," to encompass these bureaucracies. Globalism. The
0: dying citizen, you cite the widespread belief among elites, quote, that Americans are becoming citizens of the world. An ancient A good word in Greek. An ancient but unworkable idea of cosmopolitanism has reemerged. Close quote. An ancient
1: yes. like so so cosmos, universe, yes. polites, citizen? Socrates and Diogenes supposedly said it. Okay. Supposedly.
0: But I think of this idea of citizenship of the world, this idea comes to us because air travel is cheap and easy, because it's very easy to communicate with anybody on the face of the planet who's hooked up to the internet with WhatsApp, it's free to call Europe. I think of this as as technology erasing our sense of citizenship, of nationality. But then Victor says, this is an ancient idea. Yes. Explain.
1: Well, I think what's happened in the last 30 years, what you talk about, the global inclusivity of cell phones and dish TV, jet travel, has been confused. That because we all wear tie-dye t-shirts and flip-flops and jeans, whatever country we're in, or we say, OK, man, or the F word, or you, go, you can go to Argentina, or you can go to Taiwan and hear rap music, we're all right. in the brotherhood of man. We're not. As I said, 190 nations, as you read, less than half of them are consensual. So if you confuse this uh, harmony that's a veneer, this similarity and with something it's existential. Only it's only a similarity. It's only a similarity. So why, and I'll give you an example. What, where it leads to is Secretary of State Blinken asking the United Nations to investigate whether the United States is racist or not. So basically he's telling Americans I trust an ecumenical body of nations, 60% of whom are not consensual, and they include China that has 1.4 people in, in camps, and they may have political reasons to find us racist, but we're going to abide by their recommendations, or the criminal court, or the Paris Climate Accord. It was summed up by uh, Klaus Schwab, the, the architect of Davos, remember him? Right. Good old Klaus, Klaus Schwab, I read some of his books, and he wrote a book, The Great Reset and if we could just get all of the elites together—a Bill Gates on one side of the table, a John Kerry—and we can get them all here, and then we can decide that there should be an international tax code, which they're going to which decide. They, yes. they did, and then we'll get rid of that Ireland undercutting everybody to get investment. And we're going to get together. We'll have diversity. We'll set quotas for diversity. We're, we're going to run things. It's just like right out of frightening Plato's Republic, with these guardians. You know, they're superior people, and they're going to talk down to people, the elite. Oh. So, philosopher king? Victor, mental experiment.
0: <clears throat> Facebook, yeah, 2.8 billion users. Yeah. So since this country has a population of 330 million, we've got 80, 85% of Facebook users are outside this country. Facebook has offices around the world. It pays taxes in one country after another. Why should the people who founded and run Facebook think of it as an American company. It's not. All right. So what should we
1: do about Facebook? Anything? I think we should say if you have a competitor like Parler, and I have conflict of interest because I know the founder of Parler and I like her a great deal, but don't try to put her out of business. And we used to treat people like you that were entrepreneurs, brilliant, successful, but mastered or rigged the game. They were called Rockefeller, Carnegie, and we had antitrust laws. So if you say, they're saying to us, Peter, if you don't want to have a Facebook account and you don't like our censorship and you don't like that we rig certain news stories or Google is saying to us, I think 85% of the searches and we know that they calibrate the searches on some kind of the results on political, Mm -hmm. then go somewhere else. Sort of like saying to an African American in 1950, if you're in Alabama or Mississippi, if you don't like my lunch counter. That's a free country, go to that other lunch counter. And he says, well, there is no other lunch counter. Oh, it I can't didn't can help know you there. Yeah, well, if you don't like Facebook, go to another. There is none. You've got a monopoly. You've bought out 200 companies. And so they are monopolies. So can I ask that then, is your reading,
0: your reading of antitrust yeah. at the turn of the 20th century, mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, great champion of antitrust, and what's, what's going on at some basic level is, ordinary middle class Americans who at that stage there were still a lot of farmers. Selma was still, being, was still being farmed in those days. And they look at J.P. Morgan and they look at John D. Rockefeller and they look at Andrew Carnegie and they say, well, I don't know the details, but that's just too big. That's just
1: not American. No. It's unhealthy. It's not bigness or size. It's not. It's control of the market by undercutting uh, competitors and forcing them to sell out or offering them money or censoring the, the use of the product according to partisan or political views or having so much. We used to have this term dark money. Remember Jane Meyer, dark yes, money? Yes, yes. What is $500 million of Mark Zuckerberg infused in the 2020 election to at particular precincts to enhance the registrar or the balloting uh, work of the government? So, so
0: is it a test, will it be a test for you over the next five or ten years if Americans say more or less coherently but if they just, if there's at least an impulse to say to Facebook and Amazon, YouTube, this, this, we have to control you. Yeah. what is that said? sort of a
1: test? I think we did that with AT&T. We've done that a lot. Why doesn't uh, just Amazon say you control all of our purchases. you gained a hundred billion dollars during the lockout, just sell off your books or your kitchenware group to another thing. And they don't, you know, we can do that if we we want. But we didn't think this up. We love these companies. And then we discovered something, that they manipulate searches, that they manipulate the order of a search, that they let the Taliban tweet, but not the former president of the United States on Twitter. And so there are active uh, economic, social, and political agendas and we're not the political one, they are the political one. And they have an agenda and they're using their power and monopolies for a particular political purpose. And the
0: correct response is we're
1: citizens, don't treat us like serfs. The the correct response is you do your worst and we'll do our best and may the best man win. We're the citizens, not you. We'll see who
0: wins. Okay. Victor, what is to be done? So here's my thinking on reading The Dying Citizen, education if we're going to assimilate people, if we're going to teach Americans the importance of citizenship, education. But the people qualified to educate in this country overwhelmingly disagree with you,
1: right? In our, <laughs> in our colleges
0: and universities.
1: I'm speaking at a college campus. I'm glad that you used that euphemism, well, dis- disagree with you. it's me.
0: you and me, Victor. It's you and me. So, I, I mean, that's, all, that's a special case. What do we make of? The declining importance of citizenship to the people who instruct young American citizens.
1: It's it's tragic. When we were all in school, we had something called civics. Yes. And I remember when I was in first grade, we were taught how to fold the flag and march it and we were taught a whole array. I say we were taught. In my first grade class, there was about nine who were so-called white and, and 31 that weren't and very impoverished, Uh, Had about a 4,000 per capita income in Selma, California in 1960. But everybody learned these protocols. And then we learned that there was a tripart government. And then our teacher would go checks and balances. And then we were talked about the crack in the Liberty Bell. And then we were given little bios. And they were not just Lou Gehrig or George, they were George Washington Carver. Yeah. And uh, they were. Great inventors, Thomas Edison. So there was this inculcation.
0: No matter how poor, no matter where your parents came from, you were taught to be. If an there was American. an
1: ideological bent to them, it wasn't racism. It wasn't capitalism. It was middle classism. And the right. idea was, this guy w- came from nothing. The the Wright brothers came from nothing, and. Uh, that's what it was, the middle class chauvinism, if I could, and that's what we were inculcated in. And then we decided in our infinite wisdom, the more affluent, leisure, and wealthy we are, we were going to make this university and we said to ourselves, did we, in the 60s, the family is racist it's sexist or classist and the church and the community and the government, so we in the university are brilliant people and we can't be fair or disinterested because the whole society is biased. So. Guess what? We get to be biased. So we're going to take you, and we're not going to give you Socratic inductive education. We're going to deductively tell you that your heritage, your founding, the nature of your country is toxic. It always was, it is, and it always will be, unless you listen to us. So it's an indoctrination. And it levers this effort, partly because of globalization on the coast, and enrich the coast. right? And that's where the universities are, aren't they? The Ivy League, or Stanford, or where we are today or USC, it's not, I mean, there's great universities, but that's not where the power lies. And these globalized people and the wealth endowment, 30 billion, 40 billion. So they said to us, we're going to indoctrinate you in a very noble way and make you enlightened and better change human nature. Okay, so they did that. And in the process, people did what? It's a zero sum game. They didn't learn language, they didn't learn philosophy, they didn't learn physics, math at the old way. And so they became very confident but very ill-prepared and arrogance and ignorance about the most toxic combination you can have. If you also add 1.7 trillion dollars in debt that these universities collided with a, colluded with the government. And they talk about collusion, 1.7 trillion. So these and kids, are, debt. what are they going to do with a, a BA from Cal State San Jose in sociology when you owe $80,000? You tell me, and the university jacked up the rate of inflation, uh, the rate of tuition above the rate of inflation annually. Mm. Why did they do that?
0: Victor, China, the billionaire Ray Dalio, quote, empires rise when they are productive, financially sound, earn more than they spend, and increase assets faster than liabilities. This tends to happen when their people are well educated, work hard, and behave civilly. Compare China with the United States on these measures and the fundamentals clearly favor China, close quote. Consensual government with citizenship at the heart of the entire project, victor, 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 that's yesterday. China is creating an entirely new model
1: and it works. Well, you're, I know you're playing devil's advocate but whether it's Hegel or Nietzsche or or there's a whole but going back to Tacitus or Suetonius, there's a whole tradition of nihilists. And they warned us. They said that consumer capitalism, consensual government, creates affluence and leisure at untold magnitudes. And therefore, the individual must have religion, family, community, traditions, parents, fear of their grandparents looking at them from heaven or hell, whatever, to restrain the appetites. And when they are loose, and they will inevitably be loose, it's too much of a t- you get what we have now if you look at our popular culture. Decadence. Okay. The yeah. word for it is decadence. Deca- the Romans had the word luxus, ah. luxury. But it meant always pejoratively. It was meant. And then China comes along and says, we look at these Western decadent people and look at them. And I just read a Chinese article. They had their pride flag. They had their gender studies at Kabul. They had George Floyd's mural. And what were they doing? They were high tailing it out, and they were different from the British, at least the British imperialists when they in- imposed a. And the enlightened culture won, <laughs> and their in culture is debased, and they're leaving and losing. So that's what the Chinese think of us. And so what I s- suggest to all of us is that China is a pernicious model. That model that you say is winning has got a million and a half people in concentration. The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. And it is a racist society, endemically racist. During the COVID uh, break, break out, they went and looked at African-American foreign students and began to arrest them to see if they had COVID. And they created myths that came from Africa. And if you're not Han Chinese, you're not going to make it in China. Okay. So they have these ideas. And the way that we are supposed to compete with them, and I mean, we have to compete from a symmetrical Relationship. So if they're going to steal patents and copyrights and run up big surpluses and dump currency and manipulate the financial markets, okay, we can still beat them if we're better than they are. But what are we doing in these universities? California just passed a rule that said, everybody has to learn ethnic studies in high school. Why not just say everybody has to have a knowledge of the English language or analysis or physics or math or biology? So if we're going to have a multiracial society, which we do have, Mm -hmm. why don't we make it more educated than China? And when I had students that took classical Greek from all different backgrounds, guess what? I didn't have to teach ethnic studies because everybody forgot who they were. Because it was such a difficult subject. They worked together. They dated. They married. Why don't we do that? Why don't we tell people that are impoverished, that are of Hispanic background or African-American, it's my duty. It's my duty as someone who's better off economically to tutor you. And I'm going to give you the skills to beat the Chinese. And aggregately we're gonna beat the Chinese. And I think we could do that easily. Yeah. And I also think that because it's not a consensual society that they have a rendezvous with some from problems. But I'm not gonna say, oh, don't worry about the Chinese. They're a dictatorship, or don't worry, they're racist, as a lot of people do. No, they're very smart and they understand the Western mentality better than we do. Mm-hmm. And they are ahead. And we can we, can, but we have to catch up. But it doesn't do any good to whine about how they cheat. The question is don't get mad, get even. Right. And get even with a different approach to education.
0: Victor, let's close with John Fitzgerald Kennedy speaking in West Berlin in 1963. 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom,
1: the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Beelina.
0: Not quite six decades ago, a president of the United States could speak a phrase in Latin, kiwis romanus sum, and take it for granted that his audience would get the, the, the reference. And they did. And they did. He could speak a second phrase, Ich bin ein Berliner, I am a Berliner, in the confidence that his audience would understand the concept of citizenship on which that phrase turned. I stand with the people of Berlin, a specific place in time, bordered. I stand with the nations of the West, actual nations, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, specific bounded places, against the globalist challenge of communism. Can we recover the sense of history and citizenship that made that moment six decades ago possible? I hope so.
1: Because if he gave that speech on a university campus, he would be disinvited or deplatformed or canceled. Because they would say, well, what if you weren't a citizen? Who were the oppressed? So we've got to do a couple of things. We have to say that history in the past is not melodrama, where you pick winners and losers, bad guys and good guys. It's tragedy. And we in the present don't go back and use our standards and judge these people that were pre-industrial people. They didn't know whether they were going to die the next day from a ruptured appendix. They didn't, if they had far-sighted problem, they couldn't see. They hadn't glasses. We give them no allowances. And we don't ever say to you, Peter, you know, I'm really worried about our culture, because 50 years from now, people are going to judge us by their standards. They're going to say a million viable infants were aborted, or 7,000 African-Americans were butchered in the streets and nobody stopped it, or there's 700,000 people defecating on sidewalks and nobody stopped. That was what the sum total of us in 2012. Do we want that? In this arrogance we talked about, this ignorance of history comes a natural arrogance. So we've got to be a lot more humble, and we've got to say to ourselves, you don't have to be perfect to be good. And that was a theme in the book. You just have to be better than the alternative. So what Kennedy was saying was that it wasn't perfect in Rome, but there were elements that were better than what was going on on the other side of the the Danube among Germanic tribes or uh, among the Huns or the Vandals. And we we have to, to say that. This country is better than the alternative. And we're good people, and we don't put the burden of being perfect. And who are we to judge people that were impoverished and died at 35, when we have all the technology on the shoulders of giants, their their scientific developments and contributions we we were the beneficiaries of. And yet, and yet, the wealthier and more leisure we are, uh, a future generation is going to say, "My God, look at that culture. Where was your Beethoven? Where were your giants?" And when you had people that spoke out and were you know, individual minds, uh, you made fun of them Are you call them racist or sexist or transgender or homophobic. And who are you people to say that? And the answer of course is to a little humility, a better educational system and unity, unity, unity. And that's why in The Dying Citizen to finish, remember the middle class is the hope for citizenship. Remember that you have to have a sacred space with secure borders. Remember that the road to perdition is tribal affiliation rather than making it incidental not essential to who we are and do not trust our elite who say we need unelected unaccountable bureaucrats who are technocrats and experts that you stupid legislators and voters don't know about and then be careful about the unelected and the evolutionaries who say let's change the system because it doesn't benefit us get rid of this supreme court membership get rid of the electoral college it didn't hurt it didn't help me right now and finally we're not citizens of the world. We're citizens of a very unique republic that uh, is in itself with no need of input or advice from communist China or Putin's Russia or the European Union. It's a singular most successful civilization in, the, in history and it's the most humane. And it would be just absolutely suicide to turn over our sovereignty to those who haven't earned it.
0: Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Dying Citizen, Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.